Before I say a word of preaching to you, let me just walk in the light about my week of getting ready to do this. So I struggled huge with performance issues in getting ready to preach today. And this is just perfect that there's feedback, just perfect. (laughs) By that I mean wanting to preach well before people so that people would say, ooh, that Seven Mile Road Church, they really preach great sermons. And that guy, Cruz, really works hard at this, and he ain't afraid to say what needs to be said. And I never heard it put like that before. Wow. I don't know if you can smell the pride that is in there, but this is a very sacred work, and there is no margin for any of that if you're going to do this kind of work. And that was totally there in me. More anxiety maybe than pride, but it was there. And then at a step and a level deeper, performance before the Father, this thing that, okay, I better keep preaching really good sermons if the Father is going to feel good about allowing me to keep doing this work. And I better nail it this week just to make sure that he knows that um, I continue to have his approval. Did everyone feel that? So this is 30 plus years into being saved by grace and still wrestling with those issues. That is not how gospel works. That is not how gospel works. God loves us because he loves us. Full stop. That's it. It's not because he recruited folks who would perform really well. That is not the game that we are playing in the life of this church. God's approval on me, on you, does not waver depending on how we do. The only way to do your work with freedom, with peace, with joy, is to believe that all the way down in your bones. So, I have no idea if this is going to be a strong 30 minutes or a terrible 30 minutes. But can I tell you that I really don't care, actually? Because again this week, for the 10,000th time in this sorry sinner's life, I breathed in the grace of God for me. My great desire is that you and I would just live in that place. Then we would have joy and peace and freedom. Um, So I need you to know that before I now speak to you. Sometimes I come across as polished and tall and strong. Uh, but I'm weak to do this well. All right, let's pray before we press into this. Father, would you give us that grace? So here we go. This is not about us. It's about the truth of your words. If you could change these 75 hearts, man, unbelievable things could happen in our time and space. So I pray that you would visit us and do that. And Father, I just will publicly thank you for the good news of the gospel, which is that you approve of us because of Jesus, 
full stop. That's good news. Amen. All right, if you somehow missed it, we had a presidential inauguration two days ago. You will have noticed that we did not say anything publicly, formally, from this pulpit during the surreal election process that happened in the fall. You may think that was a good idea. You may think that was wrong. We should have said something. But we just felt like that whole scene was so caustic and explosive that instead what we would do is this. We would wait until the electoral process had taken its course. And then, regardless of who was elected, regardless, preach the sermon that I'm preaching today. So whether it was Trump or it was Hillary, we would be preaching this sermon today. It's the sermon that you would preach to any president, any civic leader, any governor, any mayor. This is what they would need to hear. Here's the question that we're going to be asking today. If you could say one thing to a new president, what would you say? If you could say one thing to a new president, what would you say? So if your phone rang, you were given the opportunity to have a conversation with the new president of these United States, day one, just hours after the pomp and circumstance of the inauguration. He said, it's me and you. Come on into the Oval Office. I'm going to close that curved door in the wall. I'm going to put my tweeting phone away. What would you have to say to me as I begin this adventure? My entire administration is before me. What would you say? I hope as a good seven miler you would say, well, actually, I would see if he would want to walk through some scripture with me because it's God's words and not my words that really matter. That's a great answer. We lead with the words of scripture in the life of this church whether it be preaching, gospel communities, counseling, leadership development, we lead with the words of Scripture. Those words are primary. They shape everything about everything about everything that we're trying to become together. So let me rephrase the question. If you could walk a new president through one text of Scripture, what would it be? If you could walk a new president through one verse, really, of scripture, where would you go? Okay, that's what we're going to do today. Pretend that we got the invite to speak with the president one-on-one. On one. Now you're looking back at me like that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. That would never happen. You would be wrong if you thought that to be the case. We are just walking in the footsteps of faithful churches and faithful pastors in American, and wait for it, Bostonian history by doing this kind of thing together. May 27th, 1747. Okay, work that in your brain. May 27th, 1747. Here in Massachusetts, Governor William Shirley, newly elected to lead the Massachusetts Bay Colony at the time. Check out what happened on day one of his tenure. He 
and all the members of the House of Representatives got together and they sat down like you are doing right now and they listened to Pastor Charles Chauncey of the First Church of Boston preach an election sermon. It was 15,000 words. I was just going to read it to you today, but that would be five hours. The man was rolling. Imagine that. Imagine if Governor Baker called us and said, hey, if I get reelected, the first thing that I want to happen on the day that I begin is I want one of your pastors to come down to Beacon Hill and stand in the chambers, and I'm getting all the civil magistrates together, and I want you to say to us whatever we need to hear. That happened. It used to happen as a matter of course in this commonwealth, and I love it. Pastor Chauncey got up that day with that opportunity, and he unpacked for the new governors what Rachel just read to us, 2 Samuel chapter 23. And in doing that, he dropped some essential gospel truth that anyone who would govern needs to hear. So what we're going to do is take Chauncey's lead, and we're going to draw out some implications of the truth in the text that just read. And then if anyone has Trump's direct email address, you can send him a link to the sermon once it gets posted this afternoon. All right, that's the plan. Before we get to the text, a three-minute primer on the presidency, or what does it mean to govern, civilly govern in general? How does authority work in this world that God has created and sustains and governs? Is it this, Christ, and under him the home and the church and the state, or is it this, the state, and under the state, the home and the church? Here's how it works in Massachusetts and in increasing ways in the federal government, the federal level. God is gone. The state has taken his place as Lord, Savior, Provider, Lawgiver, Ultimate final authority. The state answers only to itself. And then the home and the church in as much as they submit to and walk according to the of the state or face the consequences. That's how your basic Massachusetts 10-year-old assumes that the world works. It is because we believe that this is how authority works in the world, that even the thought of a governor or a president submitting themselves to the preaching of the gospel of God sounds ludicrous. This is not how the world works, despite our furious attempts to pretend that it could be. This is how God has ordained authority to work in his world. We could have written God or Trinity or Father, Son, and Spirit at the top. Just put Christ at the top. Christ is the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. He earned that or he, he ensured that to himself. 
by virtue of his perfect life and his atoning death and his vindicating resurrection from the dead and his inaugurating ascension to the right hand of the Father where he reigns right now as the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. All authority belongs to Christ. Here's how the first Christians would say that Jesus is Lord. And what they meant was Jesus and not Caesar. We would say Jesus and not Trump. Jesus and not Baker. Jesus and not Markey. Jesus is Lord. That's what that confession would sound like from us. For our good, the living God has installed three beautiful authorities under him. One is the home, parents exercising authority over their children. One is the church, elders exercising authority over the people of God. And the third good one is the state, civil government. Officials exercising authority over the people, each of them working in harmony, each of them staying in their lane. Do you see each of them submitting to the authority of Christ? All right. The first thing you would say to a president, the first thing you should say in every civics class, the first thing you would say to a governor is, you have been given real authority, but it is not ultimate authority. You are accountable to Christ. Here's how Pastor Chomsky said it in his sermon in the 1700s. He said, new governor, may the governor know by whom he has been appointed, that's the people, and to whom he will give an account. Without this in place, everything else spirals into chaos. All right, with this in place, let's unpack the text. These are David's very last words. You know how last words work, right? Someone has lived their entire life learning, failing, growing, experiencing. Whatever they say at the end of their race is going to be packed with wisdom and insight. It's just going to be brilliant. If they were to sum up for you at the end, here's everything that I learned. That's why your scraggly old baseball coaches are the best ones. They've been 75 games. They know what a double steal is. You know what I'm saying? The last words of the old guy, we hang on those words. This is why in our pastor track, the first thing that is Jonathan Edwards' farewell sermon. Feel that? Someone said at the end of his pastorate so that we can verse engineer this to live wisely today. These are David's last words, and this is what he said. He said, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. And then this, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to boom from the earth. All right, let's work the last part first. Does everyone feel this right here? Feel that? This is good news. Anybody ever been a parent or coached little kids in Little League in Massachusetts? What's the first, like, six games of the year like? Anyone remember that? It's nasty, right? 
It's 39 degrees, the sun won't shine, the wind is whipping, everybody's soaking wet up to their ankles. You're shivering like, kid, please throw a strike because I want to go home. Then all of a sudden, the first week in May, what happens? You go to one of Timmy's baseball games, and the sun is shining, and it's 72 degrees, and you just want to sit in your lawn chair and soak that day in. You're like, keep walking, people, kid. I don't care. It's 72 and sunny. I haven't seen the sun since November. You feel that? Grace and I went to St. Thomas. Matt was one year old. She was working for America West. So we flew down there in the middle of the nasty winter dorms down here. Uh, We walked off of the plane holding our little baby boy. He had the coolest curly hair ever. And then the humidity down there went like this. Boom! As soon as we got off the flight. And I just remember going, ah, 88 degrees and sunny. I hadn't seen that in a long time. You got any friends in Seattle? You ever see where they're like when it's just sunny for 15 minutes? That's this verse right here. Everything is right with the world. This is how it's supposed to be. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. You know how you feel when that song comes on? The Spirit is saying to us, That a good ruler, a good governor, a good president can have this kind of an effect on their people. So from these words, you might press some truth with the president if you were talking with him. You feel this? You might say, you have opportunity to walk through this door right here and be for the next four years. What a door Jesus has thrown open for you. Why don't we walk through that door together with some vision and some energy for what that could be? And then you also might pause and say, you do understand that this text of Scripture means this is about you, right? This is not about you. Civil service, even being the president of the United States, is about the good of others. The common good is what we would call that. If you are in this thing, if you have taken this oath and this office out of self-interest, you're dead. You get to say that to him. If running for president, serving as president, is about establishing your legacy for generations to come, if it's primarily about getting your face up there above uh, all the chalkboards in the United States of America with the other presidents, if it is about seeing your pet ideology or your pet social project happen so that you can take great credit for it among your peeps, if this is about you seeing your name in lights, No way. This is about you being a blessing to others. Doing right by and good for the people who have elected you. Here's where you might pause to ask some soul questions to the president. Mind motivations for running and taking office. So this is a great opportunity.
All right, let's keep working this text. Let's say that the president looked at you and said, I'm in. I'm ready to go. I'm going to be a blessing, and this isn't about me. It's about them. That begs the question, okay, how can you be a huge blessing as a president? How do you get there? There are lots of different Americans with lots of different opinions and convictions and worldviews on what that might look like. Here is how the Spirit says kind of awesomeness could come. He says it like this. When one rules justly. When one rules in the fear of God. All right. This is a typical Hebrew parallelism. It's saying the same thing twice. It gives you some truth with the right hand. Boom. And then with the left hand, it comes with more truth that emphasizes, sharpens, defines that first truth. In other words, what he is saying here is, here's how you get there, Trump. Rule with justice defined by having a spirit that fears and reveres the Lord. Rule with justice. Justice not being defined as what the talking heads say. Not being defined as the latest thing that the Harvard Law Review posted. Not being defined as whatever on a sign of the latest marcher. Justice defined as walking in the fear of the Lord. A reverence for God. Okay, let's talk about the first word. This huge giant word. One of the hundreds of infinitely beautiful infinitely perfect attributes of God is this. It's such good news. Here we go. God is just. Since we are made in his image, we too find ourselves longing for justice. Just a part of what it means to be human. Every single child knows this thing early on, right? When Casey Evan and her and Henry were getting slush, and Henry's slush had a little bit more slush in it than Casey's slush did. What did Casey say immediately to her mom as a second grader? That's not fair. That's not right. Where's the justice? Why does he get more slush than I do? Where does that built-in sense of justice come from? We would argue that it cannot come from blind, evolutionary, accidental processes. That if all that we are is just a meaningless bunch of cells banging into each other, headed for extinction, and there's nothing above, beyond, beneath this human experience of ours, that there would be no standard for or category of right and wrong, good and bad, just or unjust. Such a thing would not exist. And yet we know, you know, that justice is a thing. And we would say, no, justice. And justice is because God is. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis on this topic, he will both blow your mind and really help your soul. The man did not believe in God, thought it was ridiculous had this long struggle to come to faith and repentance. And he said one of the ways that this was a part of his journey is that he would 
look out at the world and see so much cruelty and injustice. And he would get mad. And he would say, there can't be a God in this unjust world. If there was, how could he ever let it be this way? And then he said, but then I thought, wait, where am I getting this deep, intense conviction about justice from? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some sense of what a straight line is. He says, I realize that the straight line has to be, is God. Eternal, unchanging, absolute, holy. His character, his person is the standard of right or wrong, good and bad, just and unjust. And he's not just written that truth on our consciences, on our hearts, as image bearers of his. But he has revealed that truth, that justice to us in his words. We say it like this, the word of God or the law of God is a transcript of God's character. And therefore, it's this self-revelation of the person of God that helps us even know what's the straight line. What's good? What's right? What's just? And so we would say that if one is to rule justly, that means ruling in accord with the character of God who is perfectly just. And that means ruling in accord with the clear teaching of Scripture. That's how we would say that. That has massive implications for every president, later Supreme Court justice ever. So you might look at these words with the president and say, here's your calling to rule justly. And that means every decision, every legislation, every circumstance, every policy that ever lands on this desk in the Oval Office, you need to ask, what does justice look like? And that's the same thing as asking, what is the clear teaching of Scripture on this thing? You'd say to the president, you got to deal with abortion. you got to deal with racial tension. You have to deal with law enforcement. You have to deal with emigration. I am begging you to rule justly. I am begging you to get familiar with the clear teaching of Scripture on those issues. you got to lead on the minimum wage, education, prison systems, the definition of marriage. I'm begging you to fight for justice, defined as who is God and who has he revealed himself to be. National debt, welfare, foreign policy. We could run through everything that will hit your desk, President Trump, and I'm pleading with you to do justice, defined as what is the clear teaching of scriptures say on this issue. That would take immense courage. And that begs our last question is, where do you get the courage to rule justly? See, to rule justly is not merely to know the standard, but it is to have the guts to say, I'm going to fight for the standard. David calls it the fear of God. 
beautiful phrase. It means down deep in your bones to come to grips with the fact that you are not God, but God is God. I will revere him. I will hold my tongue. I will honor him. I imagine that it would be unbelievably difficult for the President of the United States to foster a fear of God in their soul. What do they tell you the day that you get elected? What do they say to you? You are now the most powerful person on earth. You heard that before? The president of this country right now wields more power than any individual on the planet. I would love it if a president heard that and said, you're saying, but I need you to know that I'm a nobody, nothing. I'm a vapor, 80 years and I'm gone. At best, I may be a footnote somewhere in the small print of history. That's not to demean the import of the office. That is to put it in its proper perspective. You might encourage the president at his first press conference conference to say something like this. Before I say a word, I want to make sure everyone knows the real solutions, the only solution to the real problems in America and the world is not presidential, is not political. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to rule justly, but I cannot change hearts. And that is primary what we and every other nation needs. We need the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus if we're going to have any lasting hope or peace. And then I would love it if they said, and I need it more than anyone else. Someone who fears the Lord is teachable. Someone who fears the Lord is is humble. They're grateful. They're open. They don't strut around with this look like, I got it all figured out, self-assured. They are eager to learn and grow and change and listen every day because they know that they are not God. And the Spirit says to every president ever, that is the posture that you must take. It's essential if you are going to rule justly. Where does the backbone come from to do what's right in this crazy world? I fear the living God. And you might pause right here to do some serious soul care with our president. Just look him right in the eye and say, I love you and I'm for you, but we need to talk about this together. As far as I can see, you have publicly bragged about committing adultery. Can we talk about that? You have disrespected at least women and prisoners of war and the handicapped. Can we talk about that? I think you may have said that you never had to ask God for forgiveness ever for anything. Do you think we can talk about that? Because they have to change. There is no hope for you to lead well 
to lead justly if you are not fostering a fear, a reverence, a love for God? There's no way. When I say there's no way, I mean if any ruler is going to be a blessing, they must do justice. They must fear God. When you get ready to preach, one of the things you do is read through a whole bunch of different translations into English to get a feel for how different translators have taken the Hebrew words and put them together. So go to the other one, Tim. Sorry. You're on top of it, brother. I was slow. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God is a great translation of this. That's the one I preached to you. But I want you to hear the KJV translation because it's wonderful. It says, he that ruleth over men must be just. Ruling in the fear of God. What they did was they translated the spirit or the trajectory of David's last words. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. If Ed Markey, Catherine Clark, Charlie Baker, Donald Trump are going to rule justly and rule in the fear of the God, they, they must, they must. All right, last question of mine. If you had one minute at the end of a sermon, and you were speaking to Americans who just received a new president, what would you say to them? If you just tried to pastor them well so that they could understand in their head and their heart what good civil service looks like, may Jesus raise up a governor from this church, a mayor, a senator, who does justice and fears the Lord. Lord, hear my prayer. If you had one minute to say something to just the average Joes and Janes like you and me, what would you say? Here's what I got. I have no idea how this presidency is going to go. No idea. It might be great in a bunch of ways. It may be a total train wreck. What I do know is this. Jesus is Lord. The gospel is true. It's true. And while we do strive to be the most holy, most helpful, most loving, most just citizens in the history of Melrose, Massachusetts, United States of America, we belong to a much better city than Melrose will ever be. We belong to a much better commonwealth than Massachusetts will ever be. We belong to a much better country than even these United States of America could ever be. Our citizenship is secure there. Our inheritance, inheritance is unfading, is how Peter says it. Our king there on that throne is perfectly just. Our future is wicked, bright. Jesus has already dawned on us like that morning light on a cloudless day. So don't allow the ups and downs of a presidency 
even of a Trump presidency, to distract you or to rob you from the joy of knowing that you're good. We're good. We belong to Jesus. All right, let's pray for our country together. Father, have grace. That's our prayer. Without mercy and grace, we, we, don't, we don't even know how that could look like, what it could look like. We do know this. These are human beings in these positions. And that you have the power to change the hearts of human beings, to bring them to their knees, to the joy of seeing the world as it is. So would you do that with our governors in Massachusetts? Would you do that with our mayor? Would you do that with our new president? We long for justice to roll. We long for it as much as Martin Luther King Jr. did, that justice would roll in our time and place. That cannot happen if we don't fear the Lord. So I pray that conviction of sin, dissatisfaction with secularism, gospel wakefulness, a hunger for gospel truth would sweep through this church, this city, this commonwealth, this country, that the people would be blessed, that your son would be revered. This is a meager little prayer from a tiny little church, but you have done more with mustard seeds than we could imagine. So we pray that you would hear that prayer and answer.